Welcome to the Denver Community Church Teaching Podcast. We're so glad that you're joining us today from wherever you are. Whether you attend one of our Denver locations or listen online, our hope is to explore and participate in the life of Jesus so that we can be a healing presence in our world. As you listen to this teaching, allow it to begin a conversation between you and God, you and the Bible, and you and your community. If you have any questions about DCC or this teaching, you can email us at info at And if you'd like to financially support our community and beyond as we set aside 20% of every dollar given to support our partners locally and around the globe, you can text the words Denver Church to 77977. That's Denver Church to 77977. Thank you for joining us today. Good morning. I'm Dave. Any questions? No? Um, I'm Dave Mazur, friend of DCC. My, my favorite connection here is that I was the last pastor standing in the church that owned this building before we sold it to you. Um, and the, Yeah, there you go. Uh, and it was the first of, two cl- of church, church, first of two churches that I've closed. Yeah, so I am the closer, which is why it's hard to find work these days. But um, I'm always honored to be here. I love DCC. Um, uh, so we're jumping back into the Gospel of Luke. Last week you heard about Jesus' temptation. What a fantastic, wild story of the devil tempting Jesus. And if you remember the very last line before we get to where we're going today, the devil, um, Luke says that the devil left him while he was looking for another opportune time. So the devil's out there creeping, and in uh, Luke's gospel, up to this point in the story of Jesus, there's only been one opposition to Jesus, and that's evil uh, itself. It is a cosmic presence of uh, the devil, but now in this story, it's the first time that we get introduced to other um, uh, people who are going to uh, reject Jesus. And ironically, it comes in his, in his hometown And it's really a story of spiritual whiplash. It really begins very promising, but it gets dark in a hurry. And as Dan said, they tried to throw him off a cliff. (laughs) So what we're going to do this morning, we're going to spend some time working through kind of the passage and then think about why they would want to throw Jesus off a cliff. Um, uh, Let's just jump right in. So uh, this is what uh, it begins, and this is the beginning of a long section for the, for the writer Luke about Jesus' ministry in Galilee. So all the way through almost all of chapter 9, that's where it's going to be in Galilee. And these first two little uh, verses are a, a summary of what's going on before he goes home. Jesus returned to Galilee after he'd been tempted in the Judean desert. In the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread throughout the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogue, and everyone praised him. Now, Luke's going to jump us right back into this hometown story, but Matthew and Mark, two of the other gospel writers, are also going to tell the hometown story, but they kind of fill in what that first verse was talking about. That in Galilee, um, Jesus is doing all kinds of things. He is becoming very popular with everyone. Capernaum becomes his base of operation, and by the time he comes back home to Nazareth, he's already healed lepers. He healed a paralytic. He healed someone that was blind. No one's ever done that. Um, he, He exercised demonic influences in people out of them, exorcism. 
And this is what he came to do. He came to teach about the kingdom of God. He came to heal and drive out evil influences. And if that's not enough, the last thing he does before he comes home is he tries to do it quietly, but there's a little girl who dies. And he takes a couple of his disciples and the girl's parents, and he goes up and he raises a girl from the dead. And he says, don't tell anybody, but, you know, how do you not tell anybody about that? So that's what's going on, and people all over the countryside are starting to hear about Jesus. And it's amazing. Everyone praised him, and then he comes home to Nazareth. So let's uh, talk about what's going to happen in Nazareth. He went to Nazareth, his hometown, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, and we'll come to where it's written, but let's make a few comments. So we all know he was raised in Nazareth. He wasn't born there. Of course, he's born in Bethlehem, and we don't know exactly when he came. He went to Egypt for a while. I think he's probably four or five. So Jesus has spent 25 years of his life in Nazareth. Nazareth is a small town, maybe a couple hundred people, maybe a little bit more, but it's not very big. How many of you grew up or spent some formative years of your life in a town 2,000 or under? All right, loud and proud, there you go. Um, well, you got to talk to them about what it's like to be in a small town. My wife grew up in a little town in Kansas. It was 10,000, but still pretty small. Everyone kind of knows everybody, right? You kind of know each other's business. And so we can assume that that was true of Jesus as well. And we can assume a few things. Jesus, um, his dad, Joseph, who was dead by this time, he passed away, and his mother, Mary, they were from Nazareth, this little town, and they fall in love and marry. And, but of course, there's some scandal around this whole pregnancy thing, because it seems like she got pregnant pretty quickly, and there's all kinds of rumors, and yet they come back. But you know what it's like in a small town. Those rumors never really die, even if you don't bring them up every day. But Jesus would have been known, and it says it was his custom to go to the synagogue. Now, the temple, there was one temple. It was in Jerusalem, but um, when the temple got destroyed the first time, they developed this system as how do we kind of get the temple out among the people, and they created, to this day, the synagogues. So synagogues would be in towns, and Nazareth, and maybe Nazareth and some neighboring little villages, big enough to have their own synagogue. It was the center not of just religious life, it was just the center of life. And there would be several times a week you would go to synagogue, but especially on the Sabbath, of course, which is our Saturday. And they would spend a lot of time there. And their service there wouldn't be completely different than what we do. They would sing a psalm. There would be set prayers. They would do a reading from the law, first five books of the Torah. And then there would be a reading from the prophets, the writings. And, and with that, there would be a little sermonette of some sort where whoever was leading that, and sometime it was a lay person, not necessarily a rabbi, and they would do a reading and then they would make comments. And often they would make comments in a way that the audience, there was some give and take, like question and answer. In fact, sometimes if it was a famous rabbi, he may read his, uh, his uh, section and then just sit and wait for people to start asking questions. And that would have happened with Jesus as well. And so Jesus did this, all right? So this is what he did, and you stand up to read the scroll. He's going to sit down in a minute because you would sit teaching. And he was handed a scroll, but he says he found the place. 
So he's handed a scroll of Isaiah. It's a very long book, 66 chapters in our Bible. And, and some estimate it's like 24 feet long if you unroll it. So it's a big roll. But Jesus had a place he wanted to go, and he unrolled it all the way to for, uh, chapter 61. And this is what he read. You'll know this, I would imagine. <clears throat> Isaiah writes, and he would have uh, read this in Hebrew and then said it again in Aramaic, which was the language of the day. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Good news. I mean, unbelievably good news. And it was a passage that every Jewish boy and girl knew. And it drove, this may have been perhaps one of the most complete um, descriptions, expectations of the one the entire nation of Israel was waiting for, the anointed one we call the Messiah, and this is their job description. They're full of the Spirit, and they're going to do these things. And yes, these things are literal, but they're also bigger, metaphorical. They're going to proclaim good news to the poor, anyone that's without resources. They're going to proclaim freedom that word gets translated forgiveness in other places, uh, to those who are imprisoned, which could be literal or could be imprisoned in a variety of ways. Um, they're going to recover sight for the blind. And, of course, Jesus is going to talk about a blindness that's spiritual, not just physical. And, I mean, this is the greatest news. This is what they've all been waiting for. And so Jesus comes back to his home synagogue, like coming back to your home church, he finds this place, he reads this, and then here's the next line. <coughs> he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down, because that's where you're going to teach from. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. A pregnant pause. I'm trying to do that right now, right? Just the anticipation. And, and people are, you, you can imagine the excitement in the air. And this is what he first says. He began by saying, now, my guess is that this is the beginning of this kind of conversation he's having, his sermon where there was some give and take. But this is what he said. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Do you catch that? He is saying that the anointed one that the entire, our, all of our people have been waiting for, that I just described, that Isaiah described centuries ago, it is time. It is time for the anointed one to come, and it is time to set the prisoner free. It is time to heal the blind and take care of the poor and take care of the oppressed. The time has come, and even that last line, the year of our Lord, it's like the year of Jubilee, which was a, a, an idea that I don't think they ever actually did, but every seven times seven years, every 49 years supposedly, they were supposed to basically cancel all debts, reset society, and, and bring people out of their oppressions and poverty. I mean, this is the best news, and he says, it's time. And then these next two lines are really important because there's a turning here, and, and we've got to try to figure out what it is. All spoke well of him, and were amazed at his gracious words that came from his lips. Uh, John describes Jesus as a man um, full of uh, truth and grace, gracious words. And, and they were amazed that their boy from Nazareth comes back, stands up, takes the scroll, reads it in perfect Hebrew, says it again in Aramaic, 
and then is able to talk about this. Now, seems pretty good, doesn't it? And, and maybe it's all positive. But um, I, I, I posed this question recently to a former seminary professor. So every Tuesday night, Bill and Phyllis come to our house. Uh, they bring a, a bottle of wine, a dessert, and my wife cooks a meal. We have a, a slow meal with Bill and Phyllis. They're retired. Phyllis was an English professor. Bill just retired a year ago from the seminary, whereas he was one of my New Testament professors. He's a New Testament scholar, and sometimes I forget he's there. So they're getting ready to leave, and I go, Bill, I'm preaching on this passage at DCC on Sunday, so what do you think? And, and he didn't have much time, and he, he's got this goatee. He kind of rubs his goatee and says about this, this section when they were full of gracious words for him. He says, there was something about their applause, and he kind of left it at that and walked out. There was something about, I'm like, really? That's all you're going to give me? There's something about their applause. You know what it's like when people are going, yay, but there's something else going on. Jesus was brilliant. Jesus had more insight than any human has ever had. He wasn't omniscient in his ministry. I don't think he knew everything, but he was able to read the room like no one has ever read the room. And they're like, oh, look how good our boy's doing, our Nazareth boy's doing. He's reading. He's doing so good. He's uh, quoting Isaiah. But there was something about the applause that I think Jesus realized was they want something, but they really don't want to hear that I'm the guy. And then the next line, would you go back to that slide? There it is. Oh, go back to that one. I'm sorry, Becca. And then the last thing they said, isn't this Joseph's sons, they ask. Now, again, this could be positive, but he gets up there and he says, I'm the guy you've been waiting for. I'm the anointed one. Do you understand? I, this is being fulfilled in your hearing. And they're like, oh, that's so nice. And I go, wait a minute. Why is Joseph's boy, right? And, and in the other gospel writers, when they do this same scene, they go, oh, this is Mary's kid. Wait. His brothers are, are right here, and they would have been sitting there. James and, and Simon and Jude and Peter, or I forgot the other one. And his sisters were here, that Jesus had a family, brothers and sisters, and they're all there. And you wonder what's going on with that. We'll, we'll come back to that as well. But something happens in this, and where he announces something brilliant, and they're going, well, wait a minute. Aren't you just Joseph's son? So let's go to the next one. So this is what he says to them, and this is where Jesus starts to provoke them. He says, surely you will quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. It's like you never trust a skinny cook, right? You never trust a sick physician, and you never trust a prophet who's not doing all the miracles. And you will tell me, do here in your hometown what we have heard you did in Capernaum. Now we're getting to the heart of what's disturbing them, and Jesus knows it. They hear about all he's done in Capernaum, his new hometown, and yet he's not doing it here for them, and that's bothering them. And then he tells a second proverb. He says, truly I tell you, no prophet is accepted in their hometown. Interesting. And, and he lets that hang there, but he's not done. If this isn't harsh enough, he's going to tell two stories, remind them of two stories. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Let's keep going. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them in Israel, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon, 
And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha, the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. So he takes them back into their history, and they would have known these stories. Elijah and Elisha, two of the famous prophets, and they prophesied, especially Elijah, during perhaps the most spiritually dark time of Israel's history. You've heard of Ahab and Jezebel? That's the time. It was incredibly dark. The king was evil. The king of Israel was evil, and his queen was worse. And Elijah had major confrontations with them. And because it was so spiritually dark, and it wasn't just at the top. It seemed like the whole land was. When there was a drought in the land, God sent the Israel prophet Elijah, not to Israel widows, but to a widow that was a Gentile. And then he does something similar with Elisha, the general in the Syrian army, enemies, had leprosy. But he had a girl, a servant girl that was, that was Israeli, and she says, I know about this prophet, if you listen to him. And, he, and so Elisha heals a Syrian general. But the town people knew what was going on. Jesus is, not com- is comparing them to uh, unfaithful Israel. And he's also saying something about, I'm here not just for you, but like the prophets of old, I'm going to go to the Gentiles. A big theme in Luke. Okay, last section, and then we'll uh, make a few comments. So all the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this, enraged, wrathful. Um, It's the only time Luke uses this word. It usually gets translated wrath. They were furious with him. And then uh, Dan's already took us there. They got up, drove him out of town, took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. Now, I really want to spend time on that last line because isn't that fascinating? You kind of get the scene. They take him to, they're going to throw him over, and and maybe he just turns and faces them, and they kind of lose heart. Or maybe miraculously, he just kind of bobs and weaves his way through, and they're like, well, where did he go? doesn't really matter, but I'm always curious about how he kind of got out of that. So you you have his hometown that goes from, oh, he's one of us, to we're going to throw you off a cliff. So how does that happen? So I'm going to spend the rest of our time talking about two questions. Uh, The first question is exactly that. Why did his hometown turn on him? Well, I think one of the reasons he turned, and there's not just one reason I imagine, is, is I think they had dashed expectations of their boy. So he had become a celebrity rabbi, and he had adopted Capernaum, which was a larger city. It was a kind of a thriving fishing industry, and Capernaum is on the Sea of Galilee. He'd adopted another town, and he was doing crazy stuff there. They heard about the girl being raised from the dead, and the lepers, and the blind being seen, and all of that, and his teaching... And when he came home, and we don't know how long he was there, but I bet he was there for several days, if not a week, before the Sabbath. He didn't do any of that. Now, Matthew and Mark mention that he was only able or only did a few things. He healed a few people quietly. But they're saying, why are you doing stuff in Capernaum and not doing with us? Now, Nazareth, to be fair, this village, they were not wealthy. In fact, one commentator says they were on that kind of pivot point between uh, just, uh, subs, uh, just sustaining themselves with what they made and abject poverty. It was rural. 
They did not live high on the hog. They were at that precipice, and they wanted Jesus to take them out of it. This guy's going places. This celebrity rabbi, he's performing uh, miracles. What's interesting to me, it's going to be down the line just a little bit, certainly not in his hometown. He's going to feed 5,000 people. You know, when you're wondering where your next meal comes from, that's a pretty big miracle. And so they are, their expectations are dashed. And, and they're going, wait, we're your hometown. You spent 25 years here, and you got nothing for us? Um, uh, let's see, Michelle was talking about graduations, right? So my son graduated from college. My last one, may God be praised, is out. And uh, it's down in Texas, about a um, half hour north of Austin, a little school. So we went down, of course, and... Uh, we went through the, the, the lovely panhandle of Texas on the way down. And on the way up, we went up 35 and we went through Waco, Texas. You guys been to Waco, Texas? Now, wait, are you from Waco? Oh, no, he's a, he's a Baylor bear. Okay. <laughs> I should have figured there's always one, right? So growing up, I grew up in Kansas. Um, didn't really have much an opinion about uh, Waco, uh, to be honest. But then I worked at this summer camp and there's a lot of Baylor Bears that work there. And outside of the university, Waco did not have a great reputation. We called it Waco. My apologies. But that's what we did. And then in the 90s, do you remember, some of you remember, there was this little incident where 51 people were killed. Um, yes, it was a cult by a guy named David Koresh. Uh, the Branch Davidians, they called themselves. There was a big holdup. It was just... And so Waco did not have a good reputation until Chip and Joanna came. So... <laughs> Chip and Joanna, yeah, there you go. They have changed the narrative of Waco, Texas. And when you drive through there, you can go to the Magnolia Cafe, like two million people do every year. I mean, they have resurrected this city. I mean, I can't imagine a couple doing more for a city than Chip and Joanna have done for Waco. Uh, my personal favorite, by the way, my wife's too now, is Hometown. You ever watch this, HTTV, with Ben and Aaron? Laurel, Mississippi. Yesterday, I wanted to move to Laurel, Mississippi for about 14 hours while my power was off. And I love, I love what they do down there, too. And they're building, they're do, they just set up a manufacturing plant where they're employing people. Like, this is what you're supposed to do to your hometown, right? You're, you're supposed to make it. You're supposed to be proud of it. You're supposed to help raise it up when you get famous. And Jesus didn't do any of that. I think it ticked them off. I think they were hurt that Jesus wouldn't do any of that. And, and, and I think they were deeply hurt, and I think they turned on him. So let me show you a quote. You'll recognize half this quote. It's kind of an interesting quote from me. So the second part, nor hell or fury like a woman scorned. Right, you've all heard that. Hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. Ha, ha, ha. We're, we're, we could probably be done with that one. <laughs> Don't you agree? But look at the first one. Heaven hath no rage like love to hatred turned. You want to experience hatred and resentment and bitterness? It didn't start with someone that didn't know you. It started with someone who knew you intimately. I mean, the hardest situations are that start with fondness and affection. My wife sat with a, a couple just recently that, was going, that went through a divorce. They're going to get divorced. And guess what? It's ugly. Almost all of them are. And some will say, well, it wasn't ugly. Yeah, but it's just so painful. And you go, how does it come to that? Because that's not where you started. So there's deep resentment when you have built these expectations, when you have hitched yourself to someone, you have been vulnerable for that person, 
And then it just feels like betrayal. I think Nazareth felt like our celebrity rabbi, our boy made good, betrayed us. And they deeply resented it. Uh, interesting that this is part of human nature. So there's another writer uh, in the New Testament that writes this. And he's talking about his own kind of congregation, which was Jewish. It was in Jerusalem. And he says, what causes quarrels and fights among you? Isn't it that you long for something, you want something, and you don't get it, and so you want to kill for it? And I go, well, that's a leap, isn't it? Well, guess who wrote it? Jesus' little brother, James. And I wonder if he was thinking about this, because literally, they're ready to kill Jesus. So why did the hometown turn on him? I think they resented. They said, do the stuff you did at Capernaum. You're not doing it. You betrayed us for another place, and it just hurt, and they reacted. But I don't think that says enough. So here's another reason I think that they, um, that they turned on him. And uh, let me just show you, this is a kind of a quote of proverb. Familiarity breeds contempt. You've heard that before? I think it's centuries old. I'm not even sure where it comes from. Um, but there's something about when you become so familiar, then you have a hard time when they want to be different than what you're expecting of them. Uh, this is the way Amanda, your Amanda, did this. Um, she, she, uh, she was going to be here, and she got called out of town, so she gave me her notes. <laughs> so thank you for the assist from Amanda. This is what she said. I thought this was great. Sometimes people never let us grow past who we are in a particular season of life. Right? I think that's true. And I think when they said, well, wait a minute, isn't this Joseph's boy? They were not ready. They could not handle, they couldn't wrap their head around the fact that they're, we watched him, he's a carpenter, actually maybe a stonemason. I mean, we saw he, he played with kids and wait, now you're telling me he's this? I don't think they could go there. And, and it made them kind of contemptuous because there's a role you play um, you've heard of the, the term family systems. I think everyone kind of gets that now. They didn't used to. That's fairly modern concept that in any family or culture that there is a system in place where people fall into roles kind of naturally. And there's something about those roles that keeps the equilibrium of that system. And when one person says, I will not play that role anymore, it upsets the system. Right? You get this. Uh, and this is probably most true in our family of origin. What role did you play growing up? I'm the youngest. I'm the baby of the family, even though I'm 60 now. Um, I, had, I have three siblings that are older. They were all born in, within five years, and then six years later, I'm the what? I'm the oops, right? So I'm always the little brother. And so I just got left out of important stuff. And there's important stuff that happened in my family. When I was six, my parents divorced. I have no memory of it. I don't know if anyone ever talked to me about it. I assume they did, but I was left out. And so my role in the family was not to cause problems, but just be kind of the little brother. And, and I think I carried that into adulthood. In fact, uh, maybe for another time, but I was 41 years old when I finally asked my father, Dad, why did you leave Mom? It took me that long to get there. And he was actually very happy to talk about it. Um, but I had to break my role to get there. So Nazareth says, you're Joseph's boy, and so it's not an option to be anything else. And in fact, the Gospels, as you keep going in Luke and other places, they're asking the question, Jesus is asking you the question, who do you think I am? And how you answer that makes all the difference. And Nazareth is the negative example, because all they could see was, oh, 
Yeah, you're Joseph's boy. I remember you. We're familiar. We know who you are. And you can't be anything more than that. And you certainly can't be the anointed one. And perhaps there's a warning in there not to become too familiar with Jesus, which is an odd thing to say, as I say it out loud. But I think maybe there's truth to that. Be careful of becoming too familiar with Jesus. What role does Jesus play in your life around your understanding, around your needs? I think there's something there. Well, it's probably a combination of both, that Jesus wouldn't perform his miracles, raise up his hometown like he was doing in Capernaum. Everyone was hearing about it. And I also think that he is making a claim that he couldn't be that guy because we know him. And that's combined where they said, wait a minute, you're, you're a false prophet if you're claiming to be the anointed one. And in this mob fury, they try to run him off a cliff. That's amazing. His hometown turned on him. But here's the second question. We're going to end with this. Uh, and this one didn't get talked about much. Why did Jesus go home? Surely he knew what was going to happen. Maybe not that he was going to get run off a cliff, but, I mean, Jesus was brilliant. He knew the proverb, and he knew it was going to pan out. No prophet is welcome, accepted in their own hometown. So why did he go? Did he just like a fight? I don't think so. And up to this point, it's, he's had nothing but praise from everyone. So why did he go home? Here are my, my three reasons, perhaps, of why Jesus went back home. The first one went is, is because he was called to. He wanted to give them a chance. He wanted to tell them the truth. It was his hometown. I think he loved his hometown, um, even if it was a complicated relationship, just like we have with our own families and hometowns. I, I think he, he wanted to give them a chance, even if it was painful. He needed to tell them the truth. He needed to plant some seeds. And you skip forward, he did plant seed. His brother James is going to become a follower of his and a pillar of the church. And some think, you know that little book right before Revelation called Jude? Well, one of his brothers is Judas, and you can imagine why he didn't want to keep that name. <laughs> so it goes with Jude. But some people think that that was Jesus' little brother too, Jude. Mary, his mother, tradition has his sisters. They all became followers, but this was an important time. The seed was planted right here. But sometimes you just go back home because you just need to tell them the truth. Um, I'm embarrassed to say that I knew almost nothing of James Baldwin, the civil rights activist in America, until a couple of years ago. I watched that documentary. Maybe you saw it, I Am Not Your Negro. It's fantastic. I just got one of his memoirs that I'm anxious to read. Um, but, but for any of those people that were speaking into a culture that did not want to hear, like, why would you do that? Well, you do it because you're called, and you do it out of love, I hope, and you do it because you need to plant these seeds of truth, even though it doesn't always seem to help. So let me show, this is a great quote, and then we'll move on. I just found this. James Baldwin writes, because even if I shall speak, no one would believe me, and they would not believe me precisely because they know what I said was true. Wow, wow is the right response. Because I'm speaking the truth, I know they won't believe me. I think that's exactly what Jesus came and he says, this is what I got to do. So I think he went back because he loved them and he wanted to give them a chance and he wanted to plant that seed. Uh, the second reason I think he went back is I think he needed to. I just think it's part of his mission. He was going to Israel 
first, and the Gentiles were going to, he will be there for them as well. He went to Israel. He needed to go home. I just think he needed to. I think it helped shape and sharpen his mission because, again, up to that point, the only opposition was this kind of cosmic presence, the devil, and he knew that there were people within Israel that were going to fight back. I just think he needed to go. He needed to face his hometown knowing that, by and large, they were going to reject him. I just think it's something he needed to do. And then lastly, I wonder, at least now that we look back, if he went as a model for us. Maybe we all have to face our hometowns at some point because we're called to, because we love them, because it helps sharpen who we, underst- who we are trying to understand uh, who we are uh, about ourselves. So I think that's uh, probably why he went to as a model even though he knew it would be painful. So here's my question. Who will you need to disappoint to be true to what Jesus is calling you to be and to do? Who do you need to disappoint to keep growing? Now, I don't think you have to look for this, but I think at different stages of our life, there's always a familiar group that you need to connect with, and perhaps disappoint to show who you are. This happens all the time, maybe necessary in families of origin. Um, We have three kids. They're all in their 20s now, and so Sherry and I are in a new stage. It's like, how do you parent adults, (laughs) right? It's hard. It's weird. It's different, and I don't think we're very good at it yet, but we're trying to get better. But you know what has to happen or needs to happen, hope we happen in their 20s especially, is that any child that comes out of a system, even if it has love and all that in it, they need to differentiate, right? You need to kind of figure out who you are apart from simply your family of origin, and that's painful for both parties. And we see that with our kids. They're pushing back because they're trying to understand who we are, and we don't want them to, (laughs) and that's how it goes. But there are times if you want to keep growing, that's what you need to do. I see this happen in marriage, my own, but marriages as well. You marry someone and there's a familiarity, right? I like who I am with you. I like what you do for me. And that's all beautiful and wonderful. But if you keep growing, you grow beyond where you were when you married. And it's painful to have one person kind of get on a growth curve when the other one is not. It causes more distance. It's also a great opportunity. So who do you need to disappoint to be true to yourself? I mean, the the classic ones are when you go home to mom and dad or you tell mom and dad that you're not going to meet their expectations in some area. We're going to move out of town, mom and dad. We're not going to be part of the family business. Uh, I'm not going to pursue this degree. I'm not going to go into law. I want to be a jazz musician or whatever. Um, Or you, you tell them or you bring home someone who says, I've fallen in love with someone. And this is going to rock your expectations of me. Maybe they are the wrong race. Maybe they're the wrong gender. Maybe they're just the wrong kind of person. That's hard, isn't it? But, but we all have to face that. And I think some of the most difficult ones is when it comes to faith. When you have circles that know you at a particular season of life, as Amanda says, And yet your faith now has grown where you find more distance between you and them. And that's a hard thing to do. I think as long as we're committed to spiritual growth, 
there will be people who will be disappointed in you, at least for a season. And that's hard. I hate disappointing people. I think it's part of my nature. And I don't really have time to go into it because I'm still evaluating myself. But I'll just say this. Um, I have been tethered to the evangelical Christian community for over 40 years. Uh, and in high school and college, I cut my teeth. And, and I'm watching my friends and peers and dear people distance themselves from the evangelical movement, even the evangelical word, and I get it. Some of you are there. I totally get it. I haven't quite disconnected yet, but I, I struggle because I've come out of that. That's my hometown. That's where I belong. I preached in a Southern Baptist church earlier this year. Come on. And yet I'm growing, not above, but I'm growing from that. I'm trying to understand myself in ways that are more true to who I think I am with Jesus and who Jesus is with me. And it gets messy. I think you get that whole idea. So where's your hometown? Is there someone you need to at least maybe disappoint to be true to yourself? And I bet some of you already have stories around that. Well, I want to finish. I got one last thing to say, and then we'll, we'll move into uh, our time of communion. So Nazareth, Jesus' hometown rejects him, clearly. I mean, in, in a very dramatic way. And he leaves, and I doubt he ever comes back. But here's one of the interesting things that caught my attention. When Jesus goes to the cross, there's a little plaque above his head that Pilate, so the Romans put on there. You remember what it says? It says King of the Jews, but it also says Jesus of Nazareth. And you know when the early church gets started and they want to talk about this man who, again, they're going to understand more about how he could be fully human and fully divine, right, this anointed one. You know how they refer to him? Jesus of Nazareth. So this backwater hick town that wanted to kill Jesus, <laughs> to be fair, right? They reject him, but Jesus and the church never rejected Nazareth. In fact, Jesus of Nazareth became the standard saying, and I think it's a beautiful point of redemption, that it wasn't this town that was evil. It was a town that um, was scared and fearful and, and, and and it had some people in it that were probably pretty bad, but most of them were just afraid. But I think they had a chance to be redeemed by claiming Jesus, he's one of us, Jesus of Nazareth. So let me pray for us, and then we'll move to communion. Jesus of Nazareth, uh, it's amazing that you were rooted in this world, and it's such a tangible place, and such a backwater place. <laughs> it, it hid you well from uh, prying eyes that maybe wanted to take advantage of you or to uh, thwart you in some way. Uh, it was part of your father's design, um, and yet it must have been so painful when you went back to them and they rejected you in mass. And yet, many of them are going to become your followers. So this morning, um, help us understand our own Nazareth, our own places that we need to kind of go back into with who we understand you to be and, by, uh, and who we understand ourselves to be. Um, uh, help us do that well, but mostly, Jesus, what we ask is that the question, who are you, to each of us, I pray you'll help us answer that really well so that we don't become too familiar to you and put you in a role which frees us up to be exactly who you have called us to be. That is our prayer. And it's in your name, Jesus of Nazareth, that we pray. Amen.